Good morning, everybody. You guys doing okay? You guys good? Good. <laughs> Everyone have a good Christmas? Good. Awesome. Very good. So um, I don't know if anyone else's wife is like this. My wife, when it comes to getting gifts, is very difficult, not because she's uh, high maintenance. It's because she's the most low maintenance person ever. If anyone else's wife is like this, and I'll say, you know, hey, what do you want? Can I, you know, give me some ideas? What's something I can get for you? And, you know, my wife's the, you know, I have everything I need. You know, we have a good marriage. We're blessed. And I'm like, okay, okay. Just tell me what you want. <laughs> tell me what you want for Christmas. You know, so uh, finally I got her to cough it up. She said, um, hey, just look, you know, let's go on a nice date. And we do day dates on Fridays, um, but we don't often get to go out at night and do like fancy dates. And so um, made reservations at a really nice restaurant in Brentwood and um, drove out there, you know, the dress code and all that kind of stuff and went out there and had a really nice dinner. And, and whenever we do that, we just kind of, you know, to heck with it. Don't look at the prices. Don't want to, you know, let's get appetizers. Let's get desserts. We don't drink, but, you know, so like, but we just, we just kind of go all out. So we get the bill and it was a really good experience, good waiter and everything. We get the bill. It was $135. You know, that's after everything. And, um, and I'm a pretty good tipper, but, but I had two $100 bills in my wallet. And I was like, well, I'll just go ahead and use those now and put those down. And I'm taking a bite of our dessert. We're sharing a, a, a piece of, of like this really nice fudge thing and um, take, a, take a bite of it. Guy comes by and grabs the money and goes, hey, thank you guys, you know, safe drive on your way back home. And he, and he, and he vanishes. And I'm mid-bite and I'm like, wait a second, that's a $65 tip. I mean, we live in Rutherford County, you know, like, <laughs> kind of freaking out a little bit. So, uh, so what had to happen was I, I, I had to literally go into the kitchen to find the guy and uh, walked in and was like, hey man, can I get like $25 back? <laughs> Felt like the cheapest guy in the world, but I'm like, man, I got to get gas on the way home. You know what I'm saying? Like, so uh, anyways, that was my wife's Christmas present for me. So good times. So we have been working through, I just want to share things like that with you. I feel like we're one big family. So um, uh, we have been working through 1 Samuel um, a couple of weeks ago. Of course, we were in Advent last week, so we didn't do this. But, but two weeks ago, we were in 1 Samuel, and we did chapter 21 and just a little bit of chapter 22, about five verses of it. If you haven't been here with us, let me kind of catch up a little bit. So where we're at is we have David, who is going to be the second king of the Jewish people, and he is on the run. He is literally running from his life, uh, for his life from Saul, who is the first king of the Jewish people and absolutely hates David. I mean, a, a twisted, extreme, malicious hatred for David. The reason why is Saul has, has followed a, a path of selfishness, of rebellion to God, of doing what he wants to do versus what God wants him to do, and it, is, it has virtually led him to, to madness. And so we're seeing these two kind of roads that have diverged from each other, the path of self, the path of rebellion versus the path of God and what God wants us to do. So David is on the run. He's going from place to place. In the time that he's going from place to place, he's accumulated kind of a, a ragtag group of misfits that follow him, that find refuge and find security in the house of David. It says those who are discontented, who are in debt, um, who are basically, you know, you know, kind of the outcasts of society, they come to David and there's about 400 of them, it says, and they find safety in, in the house of David. Now, during this time, David takes some time 
to go to what's called a stronghold. It's an oasis. It's a quiet spot, a safe space, a, a, a sanctuary space, if you will. And he goes to this space to talk to God and to listen to God so he knows the will of God. He could go there without distraction. He didn't have to deal with all the complications of the world around him and the threats around him. He could go be quiet and hear what God wanted him to do. So that's what David does in beginning of chapter 22. And where we ended a couple of weeks ago is one of the prophets or one of the priests of God comes to David and says, you know, hey, David, I'm glad you got this time in the sanctuary space, but it's time to go back out and do the work that you're supposed to do. And what we talked about a couple of weeks ago is we need that sanctuary space, even like what we're doing right now. We, we, we need community. We need quiet time. We need that space where we cut out, you know, the things of the world and just focus on God and listen to God. But we can't always dwell in that space. We have to go back out into the dark world and we have to be the light and we have to love people and we have to serve people and we have to teach the truth to people. And we, we have a job to do. All right? That's what we talked about. So we have to learn to trust God in all situations good, the bad, when we're on the run, when we're, when we're in the safe space, when we're out of the safe space, we have to learn to trust God. We have to learn to teach others to trust God. That's what we talked about. Here's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to do the rest of chapter 22, which is very, very short. It's not going to take us very long to do. And it's so fascinating how, how when we just go through the Bible, it always works. Uh, this will be our last lesson together before the new year, right? It's New Year's Eve. Next time we see each other, it will be 2024. And, and it's an election cycle, and I'm not going to hang on that. I'm apolitical if you're new here. I don't do the political thing. I don't think it's my job to do the political thing. And, and, but we do have to talk about, because I've been doing this pastor thing long enough to go through several election cycles, and it's rough. It's, it's divisive. It's aggressive. Um, there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of hateful words. There's a lot of people uh, who lose friends during these times, which is all ridiculous to, to, to go down those roads. Uh, but as ridiculous as it may be, our society will go down that road. You'll see a lot of tension. You'll see a lot of hatred rise up. You'll see accusations and fear and all, all kinds of garbage stir up. And so the question we have to ask ourselves as Christians, or if you're not a Christian here, you're at least on a, on a journey, right? A spiritual journey. That's why you're here. People in that position, we have to ask ourselves, how will we handle that aggression? How will we handle when there is aggression pointed towards us. We're going to have to talk about that a little bit today because that's just it. that's the world that we live in right now, okay? So we'll do that a little bit today. So if you have a Bible, we're in the Old Testament. We're in the ninth book of the Old Testament. We'll be in the 22nd chapter, starting at verse 6. Um, you should have got a notes handout. Everything is in there. Everything's on the screen. If you have the Experience Community app, just click on Sermon Notes. Everything is right there and um, should be in pretty good shape, okay? Glad you guys are here. Good to see you. And um, let's just pray. Let's get into this. Let's see where the Lord takes us. And um, I hope we respond to this. Not just today, I hope we respond to this, uh, this, this whole year, every day, okay? Let's pray. Father God, we love you. Lord, I thank you so much. Thank you so ever, for, for everyone in this room this morning. I thank you, God, that, that we do have this sanctuary space to come together to worship, to, to read the word, God. Lord, we have no idea. You know, God, but we don't know what's going to happen in 2024. We don't know how things will shake down. We don't know what curveballs and obstacles will be thrown our way. We have no idea, God, but you know. So, Lord, we pray for our church today and for this coming year. We pray for us as individuals today and for this coming year. Um, we pray for every church in our city, God. 
We pray for uh, all the, the, the churches that we have in other counties and all the churches around those counties, God. We pray for them as well. And we pray, Lord, that as we read a little bit today, as we study a little bit today, God, we pray that we honor you, that in some way we can bless you back, God, and, and, and that we can be the light and, and the conduit for the light, God, that you want us to be. We love you. We thank you, God. Keep your hand on us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me read a little bit. It's going to be very short, and um, then we'll go back and talk about it, okay? Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. At that same time, Saul was in Gabeah, sitting under the tamarisk tree at the high place. His spear was in his hand, and all his servants were standing around him. Saul said to his servants, Listen, men of Benjamin, is Jesse's son, that's David, going to give all of you fields and vineyards? Do you think he'll make you all commanders of thousands or commanders of hundreds? That's why all of you have conspired against me. Nobody tells me when my own son makes a covenant with Jesse's son. None of you care about me or tells me that my son has stirred up my own servant to wait in ambush for me, as is the case today. Then Doeg, we'll talk about him here in a second, he's a dirtbag. Doeg, the Edomite, who was in charge of Saul's servants, answered, I saw Jesse's son come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions. He also gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. All right, there's some interesting, interesting stuff in this chapter. And, and by the way, one of the more tragic events in the entire Old Testament is in this chapter, and we'll read that here in a second. So after David leaves the oasis, the, the, the safe sanctuary space he was in, Saul discovers where he had been and where he was going. Now, again, imagine this like a movie. So you, you imagine David kind of walking out of this oasis, safe space, flash over to where you have this beautiful tamarisk tree or tamarisk tree, which in a lot of religions sees that as a sign of, of, of healing and of, of spiritual health. And under this tree sits Saul with his spear in his hand and his corrupt base mind is, is drowning in jealousy and in hatred. He just wants to get and kill David. So Saul's disconnect from God, listen to this, his disconnect from God led him to paranoia. And paranoia leads us to jealousy. Paranoia leads us to conspiracy theories. Paranoia leads us to hatred. And this is where Saul's mind has gone. Jealousy, conspiracy, hatred. And notice this, it's all about Saul. He, he plays the victim here. If you have been with me for any length of time as we've been doing 1 Samuel, you know that Saul is not the victim. He's the perpetrator, but he sees himself as the victim. And he sees David, the, the, the natural leader, as an enemy. And so because he sees himself as the victim, he thinks that everyone is conspiring against him. So here's what happens. When we don't follow God, we naturally follow self. And when we elevate ourselves to the status of God, when things go wrong, it can't be my fault, it has to be your fault. 
because I worship self. I've elevated myself above all things, so I can't be the thing that's wrong. You're what's wrong. The government's what is wrong. God is wrong. The church is wrong. Everything is wrong except me, and everyone is against me. And this is where Saul's mind has gotten. He was the victim in all this because he has elevated himself above all other things. So in order to tempt his men to want to go fight this battle against David with him, Saul uses fear tactics to to appeal to their sense of greed and their sense of power. So this is what sinful and selfish leaders have always done throughout the history of all humanity. See if you've ever seen anything like this or heard of anything like this. What these sinful and selfish leaders do is they try to tempt the population by trying to appeal to their sense of pleasure and their sense of power. If you just choose me, you'll get everything you always wanted. If you just choose me, you'll get it all for free. If you just choose me, everything's gonna be okay and I'm gonna fix everything from you. It's gonna be all right, just choose me. And then we see the other side of that where they say, if you don't choose me, everything's gonna fall apart. If you don't choose me, if you don't, I don't know, vote per se for me, and you vote for the other person, everything's going to go to hell in a handbasket, and they use this manipulation of fear as a means to control your decisions. That's what sinful and selfish leaders have always done. It's what they will always do, and these are the tactics that Saul was using. So we're going to find out here in a little bit that that the servants, the soldiers of Saul are righteous, good men. We're going to find that out in the next part that we read. And so he is accusing them of conspiracy. He is, you know, he is accusing them of siding with David and not with him. And he's saying all of this crazy stuff because his mind is gone. And all of, all of Saul's soldiers are sitting there holding spears or holding their swords or whatever they're doing. They're standing there and they're just kind of like, what is he talking about? And they're not saying anything because they're, they're innocent and they're confused. Now, in this awkward silence, a guy that we talked about a couple of weeks ago he does speak up, Doeg speaks up, and he says, Saul, I know what David is doing. I know where he's at. I happen to overhear all of this in this area called Nob. If you weren't with us a couple of weeks ago, David goes to an area to find a priest. He wants to get some food. He wants to get hopefully a weapon. He wants to get prayer, but he also lies to the priest and says he's on a mission from the king, which was a lie, and we'll talk about that a little bit here in a second. But the odd thing about that time when David was talking to the priest is it says over here on the side, there was a guy named Doeg and he was listening to the whole thing. And that was important because we're gonna find out that he rats David out and and he's gonna do some awful stuff here in a little bit. But what we're gonna see in this next part that I'm gonna read is Saul has been on this road of, of self, this road of rebellion to God, doing things the way that he wants to do them. And we have been seeing this road do this more and more and more, but we're going to see the the kind of extremities. We're going to see the extreme ends of when we pursue self in this contrast of the path of God and the path of just pursuing the, the individual. We're going to see it get wider and wider and wider, okay? So the king sent messengers to summon the priest Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, and his father's whole family who were priests in Nob. All of them came to the king. Then Saul said, listen, son of Ahitub, I am at your service, my lord, he said. 
Saul asked him, why did you and Jesse's son conspire against me? You gave him bread and a sword and inquired of God for him so he could rise up against me and wait in ambush as is the case today. Ahimelech replied to the king, who among all your servants is as faithful as David? He is the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard and honored in your house. Was today the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Please don't let the king make any accusation against your servant or any of my father's family, for your servant didn't have any idea about all this. But the king said, you will die, Ahimelech, you and your father's whole family. Then the king ordered the guard standing by him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because they sided with David. For they knew he was fleeing, but they didn't tell me. But the king's servants would not lift a hand to execute the priests of the Lord. So the king said to Doeg, go and execute the priests. So Doeg the Edomite went and executed the priests himself. On that day, he killed 85 who were wearing linen ephods. That was the, the vest that the priest wore. He also struck down Nob, the city of the priests, with the sword, both men and women, infants and nursing babies, oxen, donkeys, and sheep. That's pretty dark when you think about it. We read over stuff like that. Imagine someone who, who intentionally murders 85 people single-handedly and then goes to a city, right? And we're gonna talk about that here in a minute and, and, and wipes the whole city off the face of the map. So Saul summons Ahimelech, the priest. Once Saul knew that Ahimelech had had a conversation with David, he calls Ahimelech and he gets his whole family there and he accuses the priest of conspiring with David against Saul. Now Ahimelech hasn't done anything wrong. So he gives, man, I hope, we, I hope you guys hear this this morning. He gives a very rational response to this false accusation. He says, who among all of your people, Saul, is more faithful to you than David? He's basically saying, that's, that's why I helped him, because he's your best servant. And so Ahimelech defended his actions with very calm, reasonable points. Let me stop there for a second. If anyone falsely accuses us of anything, we don't have to scream at them. We don't have to yell. We don't have to, you know, throw fists. We don't have to put stuff on Facebook. We don't have to act like idiots. All we need to do is respond to the false accusation with calm truth. You hear me? If you're innocent, you have nothing to be riled up about. You know what I've learned over the years because I've had so many accusations and people say things and the church did this and church did that. I've learned that the truth always bubbles up to the surface. I just need to be quiet, live righteously, do what I'm supposed to do. And if I'm innocent, I have nothing to worry about. Someone hears me out there, right? Okay, good. Okay, thank you. So Ahimelech defends the false accusations with a couple of statements. He says, listen, David has always been pro-Saul, Saul, why would you be upset that I help him? He, he helps you. He also says that David had come to him many times for prayer. That's what inquiring of God means. 
And the, and the priest goes, it's not out of the ordinary that David would come to me for prayer. That's what I do, right? And, and he would come often. He also says, Ahimelech says, I'm your servant. Look, if you go back and read it, when, when Ahimelech was called, he said, Lord, I'm at your service. Lord, lowercase l, meaning I, I submit to your authority. And then the last piece of rational things that, that, that Ahimelech said to Saul was, he said, I didn't even know that there was a problem between the two of you. He said, please don't make an accusation of conspiracy when I didn't even know that you guys were, were in opposition to each other. So he answered him with calm truth. Now here's what's gonna happen. If someone brings a false accusation about you, usually they don't bring it directly to you. Usually they gossip about a lot at first before they ever talk to you. But if they, for some crazy chance, bring the false accusation right to you. If you return the false accusation with calm truth, it will do one of two things. It will either diffuse the situation if they wanna hear the truth, right? Or it will do the opposite. When people don't wanna hear the truth, it ignites them. So because Saul was so disconnected from God, Saul has proven that he had no desire to hear truth. This isn't the first person who spoke truth to Saul. Tons of people spoke truth to Saul and he didn't wanna hear it. And because Saul was selfish, because Saul rebelled against God, the commands of God, the word of God, what had happened to Saul was his mind was completely corrupt. He couldn't think straight. He couldn't think rationally. And if Paul never wrote anything after Romans chapter one, he would have still contributed a lot because it's huge. In Romans chapter one, Paul talks about this, that if one lives in unrepentant sin for, for, for an, a long uh, extended period of time, that God gives them over to a worthless mindset, gives them over to a, a debased mind. And this is where Saul was. So in Saul's sin, listen, he was unable to think rationally. When we live in sin, we're unable to think rationally. And when we're not thinking rationally, we make destructive decisions. Now, we may not make the same exact decisions that Saul did. We may not want to murder somebody. But I can't tell you how many people over the years have sat in my office after they, they, they let a moment of temptation because they have not lived in a consistent relationship with God they throw away their entire family, their career, their relationship with their children to sleep with a woman one time. I had a man years and years and years ago sit in my office. I can't believe he didn't go to jail. But anyways, he sat in my office. He threw away his marriage. He threw away his, his career. He threw a relationship away with his children, everything to have sex with an underage girl one time. Threw it all away. Because here's the thing, when we're not living in relationship with the rational God, we make irrational decisions. And they hurt a lot of people. And so we will go down the same path of Saul if we are not careful. And we will do really stupid things if we are not living in a relationship with God. And so Saul is confronted, he makes a false accusation. The priest says, well, look, here's all these reasons why that accusation is not true. And he keeps a level head. And instead of Saul going, oh, okay, that's the truth. I'm gonna calm down. He didn't have any desire to hear the truth. So it escalates. And his response is, you're gonna die. Not just you, your entire family is going to die because you have sided with David. He didn't wanna hear the truth that none of that, none of that was, was real but because he was the victim, he was gonna make everyone else pay. And so then Saul commands his soldiers, hey, 
Kill all these priests, kill them all. And we find out here that Saul's men are pretty righteous guys. And they say, we're not gonna do that. We're not gonna lift a hand and kill God's anointed priests who are innocent. We're not gonna do it. So then Saul turns to someone who will. Back to this guy, Doeg. Doeg is a foreigner, and that's not to speak poorly of anyone who's from another country or anything like that. The reason why that's important, that it mentions that he's an Edomite, is he didn't have the same kind of allegiances to Jewish customs and Jewish laws and things like that that the other people did. So not only was, was Doeg from a different culture, Doeg was probably a mercenary, probably. We see something that a mercenary would do right here. And he carries out the execution of 85 priests. Then after killing 85 priests, he travels an hour to an area called Nob. And he goes that area and he kills every man, every woman, every child, every baby, even kills all of the animals. And he seems to have no problem with this. And what we see here is we see sin carried out to, to its extreme ends. Because the wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. Now, oftentimes that is spiritual death, but it can also mean literal death. And we see it here, sin carried out to its extremes. Now, here's the thing. If you have been with me, if you've been with me for any length of time, Saul didn't start off a murderous bad guy. He didn't start off like that. Saul started off as a young man that loved God. It even records earlier in 1 Samuel that he would prophesy with the prophets, that he would get in the spirit of God and prophesy with the prophets. This man once held the spirit of God. It says that in 1 Samuel. But you know what started to happen? And I hope some people in this room hear me when I say this. He started off a good, honorable young man, right? But over time, listen, it became more about himself and less about God. You hear me, Southern Christians? It became less about God and more about what he wanted. And the division started off small, but over time, it gets wider and wider and wider because the pursuit of self leads to sin and sin leads to destruction. The pursuit of self leads to sin and sin leads to destruction. And again, the slaughter of an entire village, that's a very extreme example of where sin can take us. But if we do not let God get a grip on us, if we do not address the sin that is in our hearts, if we do not have a consistent relationship with him, if we do not get a grip on our selfishness, we may not cause murder, but we will destroy families. We will destroy uh, marriages. We will destroy friendships. We will destroy economic situations. We will destroy, destroy school systems. We will destroy governments. We will do a lot of destruction. It may not be flesh and blood death, but a lot of things will be killed. A lot of morality will be, will, will be snuffed out. A lot of bad ramifications if we do not get a grip on our personal selfishness and our unrepented sin in our own lives. So we are reminded, before Saul became king, God told all the people this would happen. The dangers of following a person more than following God. And God, again, see if this sounds familiar, that God had warned his people 
that if you follow an earthly king over the king of kings, there's going to be consequences of that. And because the, the, the people, because the people put their hope in an earthly leader more than they put their hope in God, all of society suffered the consequences. Thank you. Someone's listening to me this morning. Because a group of people who claim to be followers of God put more of their trust and hope in a person, a leader on earth, versus the king of kings, society started to fall apart. Do you see this? Now listen, I'm I'm, I'm not anti-government. The Bible says that we have a government to protect us. And it says that if we are living by the laws of the land, we have no reason to be afraid of the government. The Bible says that. I don't know if you've ever read that or not. That's what the Bible says. The Bible also says in Romans chapter 13 that we are to honor the governing authority. Why? Because it is God that distributes authority. So everyone who has authority, it is only because God has allowed them to have it. That doesn't mean that everyone's good, but it means that we are to honor the governing authorities. Now, if someone thinks that's radical, there's a thing called the Didache, which is basically like a, uh, an order of service that the early church would use, that all churches kind of follow this order of service. And one of the first things that the Didache told the church to do was to pray for the governing authorities, to pray for the emperor, in fact. Well, Corey, you know, do you know how bad our government can be? Do you know anything about Roman history? Anything at all? I know our government can be bad. They haven't thrown us in coliseums to be eaten by lions yet. They haven't done it yet. So the church would pray for people that were awful, awful people, were to honor the governing authority. But here's the thing, our hope will never be found in a government. Our hope will never be found in a president. Our hope will never be found in an earthly king or queen. We must find our hope in Christ, okay? Last part. However, one of the sons of Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, escaped. His name was Abiathar, and he fled to David. Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, I knew that Doeg the Edomite was there that day and that he was sure to report to Saul. I myself am responsible for the lives of everyone in your father's family. Stay with me, don't be afraid. For the one who wants to take my life wants to take your life. You'll be safe with me. So Saul was unsuccessful at wiping out the bloodline of the priest. One of them, Abiathar, got away. He fled to David and he told David everything that had happened. Listen, when David had heard about the destruction of Nob, when David had heard about the death of the priests, when David had heard all the tragic things that had happened, he did not place all the blame on Saul. He actually took some responsibility and said, some of my actions have caused this tragedy. I was in a place that I shouldn't have been. I said things I shouldn't have said. I wasn't careful about who was around me. That's what David essentially says. And he says, because of this, other people suffered. Because of my words, because of where I was, because I wasn't paying attention who was around me. Other people suffered. And David admitted to this. Now, does that mean because, because David did something bad, does that mean all of the blame goes on David? Absolutely not. David schemed and David lied, and that did contribute to a tragedy that took place. But Saul, nothing could have happened that would have excused what Saul did. And do you know what we learned from that? 
There is never an excuse to sin. Say it again. There is never an excuse to sin. Well, Corey, we had to steal because we were hungry. There is never an excuse to sin. Do you know there are no amendments on the Ten Commandments? And whenever mankind starts to amend the laws of God, whenever we start to add to the laws of God, we convolute it. That's the whole reason why Jesus came. The whole reason why Jesus came is mankind had taken the simple principles of the Ten Commandments, convoluted it to, to where there was almost a thousand added laws by the time that Jesus came. Jesus didn't come to abolish the teachings of the Old Testament. He came to clarify the teachings of the Old Testament. That's why Jesus said things like, you have heard it said this, but I say this. And he's not contradicting the Old Testament. He is clarifying it. He's showing how man had convoluted the simple teachings in Exodus 20 about the Ten Commandments of God. And so when we say, you should not steal, there's no if, there's no, there's no but, there's no amendment to that. The bottom line is you shouldn't steal. God does not condone stealing. Well, what if we starve to death? If you have lived righteously and you starve to death, you will wake up in paradise with God forever. It'll be worth it, I promise. And that's the truth. And we try to make excuses for our sin. There is never an excuse for sin. There is never an excuse, no matter how bad people treat you, no matter what happens to you. There is no excuse for retaliation. There is no excuse for jealousy or hatred taking root in the heart of the Christian. Other people's sins against us are not an excuse for us to sin. This is why the Bible says, do not return evil with evil. We are not to do that. We are to trust that God sees all the evil that takes place and he will deal with it. We also need to trust God that God sees when we live righteously and he will honor that as well. I'm getting through this for you guys. I'm getting there. So David invited Abiathar to stay with him and to stay with his people because he would find security there. Why? Because they have a common enemy. David says, the same guy that wants to kill you wants to kill me, so stay with me and you'll be safe. Now, as Christians, we are to find refuge in God. That's why we find refuge. That's where we find security. That's where we find peace. That's where we find hope. It is in God. With that also comes the bride of God or the bride of Christ, and that is the church. We are also to find refuge in the church. Why? Because you and I have a common enemy. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says that our adversary, our adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion looking to devour us. We have a common enemy, you and I. Now, I can't save you, you can't save me, but we can watch each other's backs. We can pray for each other. We can hold each other accountable. We can congregate here together and we can be of a like mind and we can worship God and learn more about God. Listen, I'm not trying to be mean. If any of your friends or anyone on Facebook or whatever stupid social media people use now, whatever they're doing, here's the thing. If they say things like, you can be a good Christian and not go to church, simply ask, can you find me one scripture that supports that? Just one. From the very beginning of the Bible all the way to the end, the people of God has always congregated corporately together at least once a week. And it even says in the New Testament, and then they would break off and go to each other's house. We call those life groups here throughout the week and that they do these things. And it even says in Hebrews, to not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some of you are doing, 
The Bible even says, don't stop meeting together like we are meeting right now. And we need to do that more and more and more as the second coming of Christ gets closer. And I don't know if you think of things like this, if we think of things like this, but every day that passes is one day closer to Christ coming back. So we need God. We also need each other. That's why the Bible says it's not good that man is alone. We are not meant to be lone rangers. We're meant to be in community. We are built to be communal. And we find refuge in each other because we have a common enemy. Now, what's really neat, if you've never read the book of Psalms, it's a long one. I think it's the longest book of the Bible. A lot of the Psalms that David wrote are about situations that take place in 1 Samuel. Psalm 52 is written about this chapter. He writes a song about this. So in Psalm 52, David writes that he is not going to get vindication on Saul and Doeg. God is going to do that. God is going to take care of that. And David calls Saul the man who would not make God his refuge. Look at this. But took refuge in his own destructive behavior. Two paths, right? He would not find refuge in God. He found refuge in himself. Saul did. And we learn that that leads to destruction. So that means that you and I need to take an inventory, not just the first three months of the year, right? Not just as a New Year's resolution, all year, right? All the time. We need to take an inventory. Have I become selfish and gone down this road of what I want more than down the path of where God wants me to go? And if we continue down that road, it gets wider and wider and wider, the distance, and it will always lead to destruction. So we need to make sure that we're not on that journey. Okay. Like Saul, When we lack a consistent relationship with God, something eventually has to fill the space where God is supposed to be. When we lack a consistent relationship with God, something eventually has to fill that space. You know what church, uh, especially in this part of the country, you know what church is like in the first three months of the year? It's kind of like when you buy a treadmill, right? And you use it a lot when you first get it, and then eventually you just hang clothes on it. That's what church is like in the new year in America. A lot of people make a new year's resolution. I I don't want to go to hell this year, so they'll come to church for a little bit. Um, You'll notice this room's pretty full right now, but typically this church will grow 1,000, 1,500 people in the first two months of the year. A lot of people crowd in and then, man, it's exciting and look how packed it is, but don't worry if you're uncomfortable because come about March, it'll start to thin out a little bit uh, because, you know, sports kick back up and, you know, life gets busy again and the fast that we're going to start here in a little bit is over and if people make it through the fast and people think it's too hard and anyways, but... So about March, everyone will kind of, you know, cool their jets when it comes to being consistent in their relationship with God. And that's a real shame. And it's, it's the reason why we see so many bad things happen personally and why we see so many bad things happen in society, in society. Because in the absence of that consistent relationship with God, something fills that space. And what happens when we don't rely on God? Well, who else do we have to rely on? We rely on ourselves or we rely on the abilities of other people. And what will happen is when we go down the path of relying on ourselves or other people, just like Saul, we eventually get fed fear and fear fills that void. Why? Because it doesn't take long to realize that our abilities are limited. That I can't fix myself. 
that you can't fix me. And what happens is, is we become fearful people when we only rely on ourselves. And a lot of people say, well, Corey, I don't see a lot of fear right now in our world. In fact, I think American culture is very, very overconfident. That's not true. It's, it's very well hidden. Those 30-second videos that you see like on TikTok where people are like dancing, getting off the airplane and they're blocking everyone and they're doing all this. And wow, they're so, they're not confident at all. They're the most insecure people on planet earth. They do that because they're so afraid that someone will not notice them. That's why people make those videos, if you don't know that. The reason why people do outlandish things and have to go into to areas and, and make fools of themselves and record it and things like that is because we have a fear that no one will see us, that no one will affirm us. And that comes from a very broken place somewhere down the line. I actually feel sorry for people like that, but that's a fear-based thing. The reason why we spend more money than we make is we have this fear that people aren't gonna think that we're worth something unless I drive a nice car or I have nice things or live in a certain, it's fear-based. The reason why we, we go to crazy lengths to try to keep ourselves looking young and trying to defy time is because we're afraid of things breaking down. We're afraid of not looking the way we used to look when we were 25. It's all fear-based. And when we rely on humanity versus relying on God, fear fills the void. Fear fills the void. So we have to make sure we're on the right path. We have two choices. The path of self. And, and again, David talks about this in Psalm 52. The, the path of self will have some, some momentary pleasure and power. You'll get that. It's gonna be New Year's Eve tonight. If you go out and party like crazy tonight, hook up with some hot chick, have sex with her, you might feel, you will feel some temporary pleasure. You might feel some temporary control or power. You might feel like you've got the world by, by the tail, right? That you have it all taken care of. The problem though is, is you have to wake up tomorrow morning. The problem then though is you have to then deal with the ramifications. And if you continue down that, it becomes a behavior. It becomes a pattern. And that pattern, I promise you, will always lead to destruction. It destroys minds, it destroys bodies, it destroys uh, uh, confidence, it destroys a relationship with God. Not just sexual sin, guys, any path that we take that is all about ourselves. We may get some temporary pleasure. We may get some temporary power, but it leads to destruction. The other path versus relying on ourself is what David writes in Psalm 52. If we put our hope in his name, his name is good. And we reap the benefits of a good God. Do you know what the difference of these two paths are? The difference in these two paths are is if I go down the path of self, if I go down the path of, of just relying on Corey Trimble's abilities, all I know is what I know right now in the present and what I know from past experiences. That's all I know. It's a very limited perspective. I don't know anything that's going through your brain right now. You're probably like, I wish this guy would shut up and get done. I don't know what's going through your brain. I don't know what's happening. All I have is my perspective. It's very limited. But if I put my hope and trust in God, God sees the past. He sees even more than I know about myself in the present. And God sees the future. And God sees everyone's future and he sees everything that's going on. He's omnipresent, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent. He has all power, all, and I work, if I put my trust in God, I don't work from the limited vantage point of my own experiences. I work from the, 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 the all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful vantage point of God. 
I'm almost done. So the path of selfishness and the destructive results of it will always manifest itself in some way. When we go down that path, there will be manifestations of the path of selfishness. On the lower end of it will be inconsiderate people. Do you know why people cut you off in traffic on Broad Street on the way to Smyrna? Do you know why they drive 75 miles per hour down that road when the speed limit's 55? Do you know why they do that? Because they care more about themselves than they care about you. Listen, Christian, do not be those kinds of people. Corey, it's just driving. I got to get to work. It's a bad example of Christ. It's what you are saying to the world around you is I don't care about your property. I don't care about your safety. I got to get to work and you need to get out of my way. And it's not Christ-like. And listen, if you drive like that, if you're moronic like that, do me a favor and peel that little Christ follower sticker that you got from this church off of your bumper, right? Jesus is Lord, I'm gonna run you off the road, right? <laughs> Laughing, because you guys see it. Get tailgated by somebody and they get around you and they got all kinds of like ichthuses and Jesus stickers on the back. Inconsideration is a path that is anti-God. It's on the low end. People who walk down the path of selfishness, they ridicule. Do you hear me? They look at people differently than them and they ridicule them and they condescend them and they put them down. This is not the way the Christian acts. Well, Corey, but they're wrong. That's fine. They're wrong, but there's no reason, that is no excuse for to pull them down, to condescend them, to talk down to them, to ridicule them, to make fun of them. Hatred and even violence, these are manifestations of the path of selfishness. We see this all the time in our world. The more we turn from God, the more we turn to self, the more you see these things. Now, the question is this. If we are on the path that God wants us to be on, how will we respond to those things? How will we respond when people are inconsiderate, when they're condescending, when they're hateful, or maybe even violent? When people are like that, see, the path of self will always hate the path of God because the path of God is anti-self. The path of God is the path of John the Baptist that says, more of you, less of me. So the path of self always hates the path of God. And so it has to lash out at the path of God. But we as Christians, if you're a Christian here, how are we going to respond to that aggression? It's easy to want to return the evil, is it not? It's, it's easy to lose our cool. It's easy to, 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 to meet aggression with aggression. But we have to trust that God sees it all. So again, my last slide. If 2024 shakes down to be how all these election cycles have gone, you, you know what's funny? A lot of people approach a new year, and I'm not just talking about politics here. A lot of people approach new years and they're like, man, this year's just gonna be better. It's just gonna be better. It's, it's, it's gonna be better for the church. It's gonna be better for everything. It's gonna be great. New year, new you. It's gonna be our new series. Like all this stuff, I'm just joking. Like all this stuff is gonna happen. It's gonna be fantastic. And, and, and listen, that doesn't mean that you personally can't have a great year or that your family can't flourish or any of that. But when it comes to society, when Jesus's disciples came up to him, I think it's in Matthew chapter 25, and they say, Jesus, what will it look like the closer the time comes when, when you return? And Jesus said, it will be like labor pains. <laughs> 
that as time goes on, things will get more difficult. If you ever ask a woman that's given birth to a child, you're like, hey, the closer and closer the baby you know, was to coming out, was it just like more fun when that happened? Was it easier and better, right? Did you live, laugh, love when that happened? Was that going on? Most women will say, no, I had to repent for some words, right? Punched my, 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 my husband in the face. You don't, no, it hurts. It hurts more and more and more until the delivery. And Jesus said, that's how time will be until I come back. How will we respond to that? Will we build bridges during that time? Something that Christians should never do is look at people who are lost and make fun of them or ridicule them or say condescending things to them. That should never come out of a Christian's mouth. That is not the way Jesus acted. Do you know what we should do instead of saying condescending things and ridiculing and you know putting some snarky thing on Facebook that's not gonna do anything to anybody or change anyone's mind? Do you know what we should do instead of that? Instead of looking at people like they're a project or like they're an adversary or like they're so lost that they can never be fine, why don't you ask what their name is? Why don't you ask where they're from? If for some crazy chance you ever buy the second book I ever I, I wrote and, and read it, there was a time when I went to the Satanic Temple in Massachusetts. I've been there several times. I met the curator of the Satanic Temple, walked around with the curator of the Satanic Temple. Eventually, he and I went and got a cup of coffee and sat down and talked. We're very different, right? Very obviously. And I remember when I told him what I did for a living, I mean, he thought that was, blew his mind. He goes, do you want to go get coffee sometime? And I was like, I would love to get coffee with you. Absolutely. And we sat and drank coffee right there by the, the, the city center in Salem, Massachusetts. And, and, and I don't know what he's doing now. I don't know if he ever changed the way he thinks or acts, but I know that if I'm going to introduce someone to a God of love, I first have to show love. That's what I've learned. So, so listen, when we ridicule and make fun of instead of trying to build a bridge, now you may not be successful in building the bridge, but we need to try. Hey, what's your name? Where are you from? And you might find out that you have some things in common. Doesn't mean you agree. Doesn't mean that you compromise, but you try to build that bridge. Will we show love and will we speak truth and will we speak truth in love? Will we do that in 2024? Will we pray for people? Do you know what's more advantageous than, than putting snarky things about the president on Facebook? Do you know what's more advantageous about that? Praying for him. No one likes that when it's a Democrat in office. They like it when it's a Republican in office in the South. If I say pray for your president and a Republican's in there, if I say pray for your president when he's a Democrat, people go, I can't believe how left-wing that pastor is. <laughs> I kid you not. The number one reason why people leave this church is because I'm apolitical. They want me to be, I don't want to be political. But I know that the Bible says to pray for those in power and authority, to respect them. Do you know the Bible says not to even speak poorly about them in your bedroom? <laughs> Will we pray for people? Will we trust that God is in control? regardless of what happens this year, regardless of what happens here, regardless of what happens in the world, regardless of what happens with economies, do we believe that God is still on the throne and that he knew these things were going to happen? Will we be people who strive to advance the gospel and kingdom of God, not just by what we say, but how we live, 
The word says that we will be known by how we treat each other, by how we love each other. It doesn't mean we compromise. It doesn't mean that we roll over on our beliefs. There is a narrative right now that if people disagree, they must hate each other, and that's a lie. I can disagree with you and love you adamantly, and that's what we are called to do. How will we act as Christians in 2024? Not just for the first quarter of it. How will we act throughout the entire year? Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you are in this room and maybe you do not have a relationship with God, you're, you're searching, you're digging, um, or maybe you're in this room and you just started your relationship with God and you have questions. Up here on my right, your left, Pastor Jonathan is up here. He does all of our discipleship. He'd be more than happy uh, to answer any questions you have if you wanna talk to somebody. There's men and women on both sides of the stage if you need prayer for anything. If you're like me in this room, guys, if we're honest, sometimes it's not easy to love people. And if you struggle with that and you want someone to pray with you, there's no shame in that. Let someone pray with you. Anything, though, that you need prayer for, there's people up here, okay? And then all the way around the room, wherever there is a lamp on a table and then the majority of these pillars in the middle of the room, there's bread and wine, and that symbolizes the body and blood of Jesus Christ, communion. Everyone is invited to take communion. You can go back to your seat and, you know, take it in your seat. You can sit down on the floor, however you feel comfortable. Just please be respectful of everyone around you. Um, please just try to make sure that you're not disruptive. And then eventually our worship leader will dismiss us. But if you take communion, you have to repent of your sin before you do that, okay? Let me pray for us. Father God, we love you. Lord, I pray that this year in 2024, God, maybe it's going to be the easiest year ever, Lord. Maybe I'm altogether wrong, God. But if even that's the case, don't let us grow apathetic. Don't let us grow lazy in our faith. But God, if there is opposition next year, if there is divisiveness, if there is manipulation, if there is people wanting to, 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 to be condescending or ridiculing or even violent, God, Lord, let us respond in a way that honors you. Let us be people advancing your kingdom, loving others to the best of our ability, sharing the truth that sets people free. God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you so much.